0: Parents, uh, your children up to grade five can make their way, if you'd like, uh, back to some of our children's ministry workers for a time of Bible lesson uh, on this condition that you get them at the end of the sermon. Thank you for all the children's ministry workers and for how they diligently help this church family, how they help you as parents to continue to put Christ in front of young hearts, to invite them to know and embrace the joy that can only be found in him. Please take your Bibles and find your way to 1 John chapter 3 this morning. We're going to be resuming our expository sermon series in this first letter of John, and we're going to be looking specifically at verses 4 through 10 of 1 John chapter 3. I think I should spend just a few minutes reminding us of where we find ourselves in John's letter, since it's been about three weeks since we've been in this series together. Remember, this letter would have been read in its original audience in one sitting. Um, certainly, they would have um, given careful thought and attention to individual portions of God's Word, uh, just like we're doing today. Um, but remember that this was a letter in written to a people where they would have originally read it all in one sitting. We need to keep that in mind because the careful analysis that we give to individual portions, like we do week to week here at Highlands on Sunday mornings, we need to make sure that we understand the present text in light of understanding how that part fits into the whole of that letter, of God's word to us. And so this portion that we're looking at today, when right in isolation, really is kind of, in some ways, troubling. It's perplexing because of how matter-of-fact and how direct the statements of John are. When, I don't know if when you heard Steve read it in the, uh, in the opening, if some of those statements were just kind of, wow, it's so matter-of-fact and direct. Um, I was teasing about how uh, the sermon this morning was just going to be simply reading a few of these phrases and saying amen and then let us all quietly reflect on that. But we're not going to do that. We're going to learn together here from God's Word. So what has John been been saying here so far? Well, if you can glance back in chapter 2 and then leading into chapter 3, John has been elaborating on what is sometimes called the moral test of Christian assurance. He is writing to give Christians confidence that they truly are children of God. One of those tests is the moral test. You can know that you're a child of God by the works, the fruits of repentance that God works out through your life, this moral test. In the end of chapter 2, in verse 28, uh, John exhorts his readers to live righteously because Jesus is coming back and he wants that return of Jesus to be a joyful experience for them, not a shameful one. Now John is going to exhort his readers to live righteously because of the purpose or the reason that Jesus came the first time. Uh, which is what we just finished celebrating recently, Christmas, right? Jesus coming the first time is a motivation to strengthen Christians to avoid sin. That topic of a Christian's relationship to sin is really what takes center stage in this section of Scripture in verses 4 through 10. In fact, look, just start glancing through uh, verses 4 through 10 and start noticing how often he is mentioning the word sin or sinning. I think you'll find it at least 10 times in just that short span of verses. So whatever John is saying here in this text, we know that it has something to do with a Christian's relationship to sin. John has been writing this letter, uh, not because he just had some empty time on his hands, but he's writing this letter, I think, in part to combat some specific false teachings that had been troubling this group of Christians. It seems that one of those false teachings that he's writing to combat was the idea that Christians are sinless. Now that they are children of God, now they are sin-free, they are sinless. And John flatly denies that false teaching with statements like you find in chapter 1, verse 8, when he says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Uh, whatever somebody might have been saying, hey, we're Christians, sin doesn't have any effect on us anymore, we're sinless, John writes to flatly dis- um, to debunk that notion. Another false teaching that was probably going around that John is writing to combat was the idea that it doesn't matter how a Christian lives anymore. Because now they're a child of God, How a Christian lives or what a Christian does doesn't matter anymore. Sin is not an issue anymore because we've been saved from sin. So live as you please. Well, John flatly denies that heresy in our text this morning, chapter 3, verse 8, when he says, whoever makes a practice of sin, of sinning, is of the devil. I mentioned both of those examples. This error of thinking that you're sinless and the error of thinking that sin doesn't matter. I'm mentioning both of those because we need to try to seek a balance of understanding what John is saying when both of those statements are in the same letter. And it's been observed, really, that every doctrine of Scripture is going to lead you to a knife edge of precision where one step of emphasis, one side or the other, is going to lead you into, into error. And so this morning we've got a bit of a challenge, and I'm telling this to you to warn you and to invite us. We need to be ready to put the spade of exegetical thinking in deep this morning, but I think it's going to be worth it. I say that just for this thing. If um, It's going to take some mental work together. I'm going to do my very best to try to explain this in a way that is helpful and useful for us as Christians who are trying to help each other follow Jesus. But it's going to take some mental discipline for us to stay with the argument that John makes um, as we go through it. What is John talking about in verses 4 through 10? I've summarized it this way. The main idea of this passage of Scripture is embracing a life of sin is impossible for a true child of God. Embracing a life of sin is impossible for a true child of God. What he does in this section is he repeats his argument with a slightly different emphasis. And so we're going to break this section, we're going to organize it into those two sections. The first section is verses 4 through 7. And there we're going to learn that God's children will not embrace sin. And the argument that John is making in that section is focusing on the nature of sin. In the second section, verses 8 through 10, we're going to learn that embracing sin is of the devil, not of God. That's verses 8 through 10. In that argument, John is making uh, his, his, um, his case by arguing not on the nature of sin, but on the origin of sin. So let's start. Verses 4 through 7. Ready? God's children will not embrace sin. What I believe John is doing in this text is he is arguing against the notion that a Christian can have a life characterized by sin, that sin doesn't matter anymore because we've been saved by Jesus from sin, so live as you please. To understand John properly, we need to recognize what he has in mind when he talks about sinning. The sin he has in mind here, I don't believe, is any wrongdoing that a person might commit. And that distinction, I think, is going to be crucial for us to have a right understanding of this passage. So I'm going to spend most of our time this morning on this first point, trying to argue what I believe John is arguing based upon the context of this letter. Uh, So don't get nervous if uh, you feel like, boy, we're spending a lot of time on on, on point one. That's deliberate. In verse 4, look at verse 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. John says to give oneself over to a life of sin is to embrace something called lawlessness. Sin equals lawlessness. Uh, sometimes in uh, doctrines classes, they'll have you just remember that. What is sin? Sin is lawlessness. And you have to kind of mention that verse. But this specific word that John uses, that Greek term lawless, that's translated in the English Standard Version as lawlessness, is a very specific Greek term. And it's only, he only uses it once in all of his inscripturated writings. So as a pastor, when we study God's Word, we see a word that's a little troublesome, and we think, well, how else does this author use this word? You can't find that because it's not there. It's used one time. That means we have to look at other places that that word is used in the Scriptures. That specific word that is translated lawlessness, has, it has more to do than just breaking a law of God. It certainly isn't any less than that, but it has more than that. The idea is captured in... The Greek translation of the Old Testament, okay, uh, which was called it's called the Septuagint, when in Leviticus chapter 23, when God is describing people who spurned His rules and their soul abhorred His statutes, those strong terms are is the term that John uses here in chapter three, verse four. Another passage that describes this idea of practicing sin, sin is sinning as lawlessness, is a passage you probably some of you are familiar with in Matthew chapter seven. In verse 21, Jesus says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Hear these words, And then I, Jesus, will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of, here it is, Lawlessness. That's the same term that John uses in, in John chapter 3, 1 John 3. It's interesting, right, that Jesus is going to respond to some people who said they did all sorts of spiritual actions in his name, and he's going to call those actions as actions of lawlessness. How can it be that casting out demons in Jesus' name is lawlessness? So what happens, what I think what John is doing here, is he is driving to the heart behind the action one Bible scholar put it this way, that word lawless always refers to those who have resolutely turned away from God to the point that they can no longer be regarded as his people but are in fact his enemies. It's possible to do so-called good acts for self-righteous or even devilish purposes. And So I believe what John is doing here is he's combating the argument that sin doesn't matter in a Christian's life. He's saying if you give yourself to a life of sin, if you're embracing sin... What you are doing is you are participating in something that is beyond just breaking God's law. You are pursuing and you are ex- you're expressing a spirit of anemia, of lawlessness, of abhorring and defying God. This inner disposition of defiance toward God that reveals at least in part how a person relates to sin. When you defy God, you're embracing sin. Later in the same letter, John is going to talk about different kinds of sin. Page over or swipe a few screens over to chapter 5 of John's letter and look at verse 16. He says, that If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, and actually the word ah uh, is not in the original text, if anyone sees his brother committing sin, not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. Okay, now I know that the danger of reading a passage like that is now all of your minds are running down questions about what is John saying there. The only reason I have us looking at that passage is because John in this very same letter seems to be differentiating between a sin that leads to death and sins that don't. So there's some difference there. I think that same difference is being exercised in our text in John, First John chapter 3. That sin of embracing sin, of making a practice of sin, is lawlessness. So this means then, I don't believe that every sin a person might commit is the same, is what John is talking about, of this sin of lawlessness. Just like not every sin a person may commit is a sin that leads to death. So then, okay, are you hanging with me? What kind of sin would not be Lawlessness. I believe the answer to that is found in the instruction that John has already given us, that he's already written to these readers, to us. In 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9, in 1 John chapter 2 verses 1 to 2, we're told what to do when we sin. He says this, if we confess, in John 1 verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That is an if-then statement. In chapter 2, verse 1, right? He says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Christians are people who embrace Jesus as their, as their advocate against sin. Christians are not people who embrace sin. To embrace sin, to make it your practice of sinning, is what? Is lawlessness. There's something deeper going on there than just the wrong action. It reveals a heart of inner defiance, a disposition of inner defiance against God and his rule. So therefore, I believe lawlessness refers to the sin of someone who lives in defiance toward God and will not confess their sin. What is the sin that leads to death? The sin that you refuse to confess. When a sinner refuses to repent and confess their sin to God, that sin will lead to their destruction. The scriptures make that clear. And so John is pointing out, he's combating, I think, this false teaching, this notion that Christians, you can live however you want. Embrace sin. It doesn't matter. You've been delivered. And John is writing, no, 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 because if you embrace sin, if you are pursuing a life that is characterized by sin, you are entering into something that is dreadful. It is something called lawlessness, and it reveals an inner disposition, a defiance toward God that is incongruous, it's incompatible with who you are as a child of God. That's what I believe John's argument is here. Those who make this practice of sinning, they are embracing sin as a part of their life, rather than doing war against sin. Now, I think another key interpretive principle that is at work in this text for our understanding is are the verb tenses. Now, I know I've just made some uh, some of you all have just kind of shiver with horror about grammar school, right, grammar class, but God has chosen to give us His Word, not in movies, but in written form. And so it's good for us to be aware of how some of that works. And you all are grammar experts because you talk all the time. And you do it ordinarily. You do it well. You know when you want to talk about something that is happening now and something that happened later or or previously. Sorry, I'm using the wrong words while I'm trying to talk about words. Um, Verb tenses, that's what you're using. Past tense, present tense, those things matter. John is using a specific tense when he writes these words. That's why the ESV translates it this way. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning. The word practice is not actually there in the text. That's the translators trying to convey the sense of ongoing, continuing action that is present in this text. And that's what he uses throughout of it. So some scholars, not all of them, but some scholars believe that John is describing here somebody who has this life that is habitually characterized by embracing sin. And the word habitual is the one that's often used there. That's why I believe that what you have going on here is John is talking about not not a sin and there's confession and repentance and you return to God clinging to what Christ has given you as his advocate. There's something else going on here. He is describing, he's combating this notion that somebody can be calling themselves a child of God who embraces sin in such a way that demonstrates defiance towards God's rule and reign. A disregard of his authority and his word. He's talking about somebody who has that as their habit. Now you say, why does any of this matter? I mean, we just kind of been doing some hard thinking through some technical kind of arguments that John is making. Why does this matter? It matters because we, as God's people, need to know how God's word works in this way. How can we reconcile the statements that I read previously about how John is saying, if you think you're sinless, you're a liar. And then, a few chapters later, he says, listen, if you make a practice of sinning, you're of the devil. So try it out, right? If, if you can't claim that you're sinless, I mean, think about it, right? Have you sinned last week? You don't have to raise your hand. Have you sinned the week before that? Have you sinned the week before that? Okay, Now you've just, in your mind, admitted to having three consecutive weeks, I can keep counting, of sinning. How many weeks of consecutive sinning does it take for you to be a habit? You see where, where the logic could run you to? So you got kind of to wrestle with how would, how would John's readers have understood this? I believe the answer is understanding the error he is combating and the spirit that goes beneath the actions of sin, which is that lawlessness, which is why I think he is saying, listen, if you're embracing sin, if you're pursuing it as your habit of life, then you are participating in something called lawlessness. That is this open defiance and disregard to God's rule and reign in your life. That is incompatible with being a Christian. It is incongruous. It's impossible for those to both be present in someone's life, to say Jesus is your Savior, and yet you have a life habitually characterized by an embracement of sin. Now, I believe John is refuting that false teaching, and that brings us to his central um, strength of his argument. you see it here? In verse 4, he makes his case, and then verse 5, he's going to compel them with truth to push them away from that kind of thinking. Verse 5, you know that he, he being Jesus, you know this, right? You know that Jesus appeared in order to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. Jesus is the centerpiece of John's argument against sin. I've skipped over this so far because I wanted us to make sure we understood why John is using this specific language in those specific tenses. But John presses his argument against sin in Christian's life by reminding his readers that Jesus came into this world for the express purpose of taking away sin. So you cannot then claim to be a follower of Jesus if your life pursues the very thing that he came to take away. One scholar said it like this, what John is arguing in this passage is not so much the impossibility of sin in the Christian, but the incongruity or another word would be the incompatibility of sin in the Christian. So at this point, you think, I think, okay, you say, great, I understand some of what John's doing there, but so what? How does this help me this week to live as a Christian? At this point, I think the most obvious application is for us to ask ourselves how would we describe our relationship with sin? We will not hear that on the radio. Well, I guess some radio. But generally, the message of our age is not going to be asking us to, hey, do a self-check, a self-assessment on your perspective as Christians on sin. Our world is tirelessly inviting us to pursue sin. Our world is is promoting a message of satisfaction and self-gratification and finding purpose and meaning in life through pleasure and self-satisfaction That's why people exist and live in our world. That's what the message of our present modern age is. And this takes us really to the central message of Christianity. Jesus. He came for a specific purpose. To take away something. To take away sins. This is why, not John, this author, but a different guy named John, when he saw Jesus, called out this. This guy, Jesus, is the Lamb of God who's going to do something. He's going to take away the sins of the world. The Apostle Peter described the good news of Christianity like this. In 1 Peter chapter 2, when he said, He, Jesus, Himself, bore our sins in His body on the tree. The tree is a reference to the cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed. The Apostle Paul described the message of Christianity this way, this gospel news. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, when he says, For our sake He made him to be sin, who knew no sin. That's exactly what John is saying here, right? He, he came in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. Paul, he, for our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Do you believe in Jesus to be the one and only person who can save you, not from bad news, not in the sense of just bad things happening in this world, not from stub toes or flat tires, or economic crises or political upheaval, do you believe that Jesus is the one and only person who can save you from the most dreadful problem in your life, which is the burden and guilt of your sin? That's who Jesus is and why John is arguing. Listen, you as a Christian, you cannot embrace sin as your life. That cannot be your habit, your characteristic habit. If you do, you are participating in lawlessness. So you call yourself a Christian, okay? Okay. What is your relationship towards sin? Perhaps God would use this passage, right, so matter of fact, to reawaken some of us who call ourselves Christian to the seriousness of sin and shake off spiritual apathy so that we would begin doing war against it again. Or perhaps God would use this passage to reveal to some that, under, that are living under this facade of religion, right? Lord, Lord, have not we done all these wonderful things in your name? But in your own heart, you know that there's this inner disposition of defiance against God and His rule and reign. You might say, well, why are we spending all this time talking about it? Look at verse 7. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. John appeals to his readers with that affectionate term, little children. Don't don't think that that's a condescending term, right? I mean, if, if you were in conversation with one another in an equipping elective, if the, if the leader and the teacher in the equipping elective said, now little children, you would feel like, hey, it's condescending. It's now what's happening here. It's a term of endearment. It's a term of affection. But that, in that phrase, in the verse 7, what we find out is that it is possible to be deceived by sin. It might seem very obvious, right? Well, of course, you know, Christians are against sin, right? It's kind of just kind of standard. But it's possible to be deceived by sin. It's possible that there are some here this morning, Christians, who are deceived by sin. And God would love for the spotlight of 1 John 3 to shine light where there is darkness so that you will drive you away from darkness so you could enjoy the light of Christ again. Romans 7 talks about sin seizing an opportunity and the result is deceiving us. 1 Timothy 2 talks about uh, in the garden... There was, the woman was deceived and became a sinner. In Hebrews chapter 3, the author is warning his readers and says this, But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that's talking about, there's an urgency here, that none of you be hardened by what? The deceitfulness of sin. So it's good for us. It is a is goodness of God for us as a people in this place at this time to hear these words so that we can let the seriousness of God about sin just kind of sift through our hearts again. Have you been deceived by sin? Do you claim to know Christ and think it's okay to keep embracing a life that pursues sin? Verse John 3 is a call to abandon that. But look at John's emphasis in verse 7. He says, "'Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous.'" As he is righteous, the emphasis there is on those who practice righteousness, and that is in contrast to what he wrote previously against those who are practicing sin. That's where the emphasis is. And so, anyone who says or claims to be a child of God but is making a practice of 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 sinning, which is lawlessness, is has no confidence in their claim, has no credibility in their claim. You cannot have confident claim, a credible claim to be a child of God if you live in open disdain and disregard for God. Which means this: what we do reveals who we are, regardless of who we say we are. Isn't that what Jesus says? By your fruits, you shall be known. So John isn't done. He carries on in his argument against the um, the embracing embracing sin in a Christian's life in verses eight through ten by kind of dialing up the rhetoric even more. Embracing sin number two is of the devil. It's not of God. And that's really why the idea of lawlessness, he's using a specific term because he's referring to something specific there, lawlessness. Give us an example of somebody living out lawlessness. Well, we have that in Genesis chapter 3, and we'll get to that in just a minute. Look at verse 8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. So direct, right? Parents, uh, I'm not recommending that that's how you respond to children who disobey. (laughs) What is John saying here, right? It's interesting that there's only two options for John. You are of God or you are of the devil. So that is true of everyone sitting in this room, everyone connected via a stream. There's only one of two options for you as a personal identity in God's eyes. You are either of God, of him, or you are of the devil. John refers to the devil in this section, beginning verse 8, right? He says, verse 8, For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. He makes a reference to the devil as sinning from the beginning. I think that's a reference back to what's recorded for us in Genesis chapter 3. If you remember that, if you're not familiar with it, that's the record of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden enjoying unhindered fellowship with God. And the devil uh, tempts Adam and Eve, tempts Eve to sin. He's in the form of a serpent. And the devil encourages Eve to sin against God by saying it would make her like God. Uh, bring that up because... We might think, okay, false teachers in John's day, right, might have been saying, listen, you can sin as you can live and sin as you'd like, no matter, it doesn't matter. Sin doesn't matter. You've got, you're kind of like God now. Sin doesn't matter. Sounds familiar to what the devil was saying in Genesis chapter 3. Eve, along with Adam, grasped at that twisted idea of becoming like God through rejecting and defying God. And they did. And all of us have done the same. Jesus came to take away our sin. Look at verse 10, where John runs his, his, his argument again. He makes his argument against sin in the Christian's life, and he drives it right back to Jesus again in verse 10. By this it is evident, I have the right reference. Um, Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. Sorry, go back to verse eight. The end of verse eight, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. What are the works of the devil? I think they're recorded for us there in Genesis. It's those sinful actions that flow from a heart that is what defiant against God, open disregard and defiance, open hostility in their heart. It can be shrouded by religious uh, religious you know trappings. Matthew chapter 15 says this: "For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander." And I believe that's where John is pressing his argument. Jesus came not, to just make, not just to make people good behaving people. Jesus came to release you from the thing that plagues you most. It's the spirit of lawlessness that bends your heart in on itself away from God to defy Him with this twisted grasp at trying to be like God by defying God and living under self-rule. And John is saying, no. Jesus came to destroy that kind of work. That's devilish work. Jesus came to destroy that work. He's liberated you from that kind of bondage. He has come to take away your sins. So I, I hope we I understand, right? That we're convinced that Christians cannot treat sin lightly. We cannot have a kind of a cavalier attitude towards it, or, ah, it doesn't really matter. Because if we let that kind of drift into us, it'll build into us and lead us into deceit and harden our hearts, and we could fall into lawlessness. So, this means then that those, um, oh, I'm sorry, look at verse 9. Uh, Because if you have been feeling kind of overwhelmed with the burden, with the challenge of doing war against sin, of fighting against sin, of even in your own heart as you've been assessing your relationship towards sin, of having that sense of just internal conviction and grief over, yeah, it's like a never-ending fight and sin keeps showing up in my life all over the place. And if that's where your heart feels at this moment, then verse 9 will be wing to let you fly, wind to let you fly. Look at verse 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. Don't you love how matter-of-fact that is? Why? He gives us a reason. You see it? For because God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning. Why? Because he has been, been born of God. These words should give all of us hope. This means... That those who have received new life in God through Jesus Christ are indwelled by God's Spirit and as a result will respond to sin differently. There is the seed of God that is in all of his children that has transformed them into a new creation. The Apostle Paul describes this process this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away behold the new has come. Peter describes what John is talking about this way in first second Peter chapter 1 verse 4 he says that we've been granted what's been granted to us his precious and very great promises for what purpose what result so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. All of these New Testament writers keep ringing this bell that if you are a child of God God seated in you and there is something powerful at work in you against sin because Jesus came to take away sin. He came to destroy the works of the devil and he is in you. And that same power of destroying the works of the devil is at work in every child of God. That should fill every Christian here with hope. If there was despair before about your war against sin, now you're going to have hope. But I want to point out to you where your hope is anchored. It is not in your strategies. There's help in strategies against sin. It is not in your resolve Although it's going to take some form of resolve, but the, Christ, the scriptures point a Christian's hope of fighting against sin in Jesus. That's who God has given us that destroys the works of the devil. Whatever destruction of the works of the devil that will be accomplished in your life in 2021 will not be because of your hard work alone. It'll be because of the hard work that you do because God's seed is in you. You've been born of Him. So I want to encourage free Christian hearing these words to do war against sin because of who you are, a child of God. It's incompatible. It's incongruous for you to embrace sin. So dust off your your blade, so to speak, and go to war against sin. Why? With hope in Jesus. His seed is in you. You've been born of Him. You have been made in God's image to do war against sin. John says it like this later in this very same book. Look at chapter 4, verse 4. Little children, there again, these endearing words. He really wants them to hear his heart. You are from God and have overcome them for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. That's one of those Christian verses that kind of is just thrown around like you know, like magnets on a refrigerator or a bumper sticker. You know, it's just kind of put on haphazardly here and there. Friends, would you let that, these promises just burrow into your heart? This, that, that promise of chapter 4, verse 4, is connected to what he wrote back here in chapter 3. God's seed is in you. There's something powerful there. So your hope then should be in the power of Christ at work in you. So John, John's aim here goes beyond giving us a general warning or a threat about sin. The aim of this passage is to encourage and strengthen us to remember who we are and to give ourselves to practicing righteousness. This is why the Apostle Paul writes about it this way in Romans chapter 6. He says this. It's, he's making the same argument that John is. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. John would say this, don't practice sinning. But present yourselves to God as those who have been what? Brought from death to life. You've been born of God. Those are John's terms. And your members to God as instruments for righteousness. So please hear this, right? On a Sunday morning in a church service where you're hearing some pastor preach against sin, right? Practicing righteousness for a Christian is not an obligation that God's people must fulfill. Practicing righteousness is a gift from God we get to enjoy. That's the sentiment of the scriptures. But here's the problem. I I start to forget that. Because the world is teaching me a different message. And I'm hearing it. I have an internal traitor in me that still has this bent towards sin that wars against sin the good that God is doing in me. And so it's good, it's necessary for us as God's people to gather together to hear words of life that God has given us from the scriptures. So in verse 10, John summarizes his teaching by putting um, really everyone in one or two categories, children of God or children of the devil. And he gives us, if there's any confusion about which you are, but what practicing righteousness looks like, he gives us an example of practicing righteousness in verse 10 when he describes practicing righteousness is loving others christians loving god's people now i need to say this finally in closing please be careful not to think that doing righteous acts makes you a christian if you sit through a, a, a looking at a text like this and you come out thinking man i just i gotta really practice righteousness this week so i'm a christian then you've missed you've missed what john has been saying here i've i've failed you you are you cannot behave yourself into being a child of god That's good, because that would mean that we're Christians based on our doing. We are Christians as a result of God's transforming power of saving grace that is received by faith in Jesus. And then as a result of that, he works out of us this great salvation. Paul wrote about it this way in Ephesians chapter 2, for we are his workmanship, not our own. We're not working our way into Christianity We are made Christians by his power. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, not because of good works, but for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So Christians, here's what 2021 has in store for us, (laughs) at least in part. Great opportunities to experience God destroying the works of the devil. And we as a church family are called together Look around. These are the people that God has called you to encourage in seeing God destroy the works of the devil. And he's doing that. His seed is in us. We've been born of God. And so what this text is encouraging us to do together as a church family is just let's be tireless and relentless and encouraging and cheering each other on in seeing God continue to destroy the works of the devil in us and around us, all for his glory as we learn to enjoy him more and more. If you're not a Christian, would you turn away from embracing sin and instead embrace Jesus? Turn away from the habit of sinning, thinking that's going to give you pleasure and satisfaction. It won't. Haven't you proven that to yourself yet? Embrace Jesus and find deliverance from sin. If you are a Christian, have you become comfortable with sin? Have you forgotten who you are? Have you forgotten that God's Spirit is in you? Have you forgotten that Jesus came to take away your sin and to destroy the works of the devil? Would you have hope, renewed hope, to do war against sin, not in your own strength, but in the hope that is given to you in Christ? Take heart. I think it'd be good for us to hear these last words. In fact, before I read them, I'm going to invite the music team to come forward. As they get in place, I'm going to give us a few minutes of just silent reflection. What should you reflect on? Well, of course, this text... But hear these words that, his, that John's readers would still have echoing in their minds when they read this text. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous.